0: Hello, fellow rabbit hole dwellers. Um, I'm glad you didn't hear the joke I just did, but um, Merry Christmas to those of you that celebrate it. And uh, today we've got uh, an episode here with Philip Matas. Matas, Mm -hmm. Uh, he's a journalist. He spent Matas, thank you. He spent a lot of time in um, China. He's he's done a lot of um, articles uh, within the. economics of of that region so it was really good uh, inspiring um conversation with him and he he offered up a couple of different um opinions um that differ from some of the popular ones in relation to economics and i I took that as a a valuable insight joel what did you get from it
1: i think it was a very good episode one of those again where we're it feels a bit all over the place but we just covered a lot of ground and um you know a lot of i think the talking points where a lot of people sort of realize the same thing like for example how is a CBDC different than you know if we get flashed by going speeding too fast or something like this um, and how will it implement to the modern world and into stuff like apple pay google pay and these things and cash so pretty cool uh, really a lot of interesting thoughts as well and i think a good episode to listen halfway drunk on the couch after christmas um or just with a big belly because you ate too much so have right, fun guys right
0: right so stay merry guys yeah and stay curious
1: <laughs> welcome back to rabbit hole stories everyone with uh almost a year over in 2023 it's crazy how fast uh time flies we thought uh we would also get um someone from my end of the corner in the world on from the german speaking area and we today have philip matthais on philip how has your day been so far
2: kind of okay Thanks. <laughs> nice to meet you guys. <laughs> yeah. I've had each other <laughs> <last one. laughs> It's just really dark and yeah
1: nice 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 and as the name suggests Philip we are here to you know get to listen to people's rabbit hole stories and I'm kind of curious into your rabbit hole story and how we can then later get on into what you do today but how did you find Bitcoin why did you get started in it why did you stuck around uh, maybe give us the spiel there of uh, how it actually happened
2: I think it was around 2013 or 14-ish so it, it, like bitcoin appeared in the news back then for me the first time that's where like i think it was a small hype i think back then it went it went i think from i don't know 20 bucks to like 200 or something and you know you had you had the first media headlines on the what is this cryptocurrency blah blah and and for me i had two strings that brought me to bitcoin um one was i was i was living in shanghai back then in china and i was a correspondent for the German business week and so I had to deal a little bit more with like business stuff and and one thing was that I, I was doing I was doing another story about capital controls in, in China because they're pretty strict there so you think it's still like 50,000 US one person is allowed to transfer uh, per year which maybe sounds like a lot of money, but you have a, a lot of millionaires. I think, those, I think you have one million millionaires in China and there's a, there's, there's a big demand for um, for people to shift their money. So so there was one thing, and, the, and the, I think there were rumors, I don't know if it, if it was really true, but there were rumors where it said like, okay, some people use Bitcoin to um, get their wealth out of the country. and And I know now that like for many people growing up in the West, they're not really used to that and so so like this feature of bitcoin didn't really click but but for me because i was like already searching um doing a story about how chinese people uh, evade capital capital controls it it, it it immediately clicked with me i thought okay they use this it makes sense right so this was i think a kind of important thing that for me personally to to understand the use case of bitcoin and the second thing was it's was more a personal story i had a I have a, I still have a an, an, an very old, not very old friend, but he's my age. But he's uh, he's living in Bangkok for more than twenty years, and he's he's a kind of like a funny, funny uh, life story. So he was always interested in kung fu, and he had a he had a, he had his kung fu master in Malaysia. So he moved to Malaysia because he wanted to do kung fu and then there was like early 2000 right and 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 then he met he met some guys who were selling like fake skateboard stuff like etsy and and these um etnies sorry etnies and this stuff on on ebay which was still possible back then like now i think you get immediately sued by the companies but back then it was possible and they said like hey you have to go to thailand because it's easier there blah 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 so he moved to thailand and did this for a while made some good money so, but the, the reason why, why I tell this because I think it was very interesting because this guy was like really always thinking outside the box, and he hang out with a lot of people who were thinking outside the box, and he got in touch with Bitcoin. I think in 2012 or 2011. He's he's like he's a he's a millionaire now. But like when I met him, he like told me about Bitcoin, and we were like it was like 2013 in Bangkok. We were talking about Bitcoin, and he said like, yeah, I have some friends who like. Bought I don't know a couple of hundreds, and I actually I just um, I just liquidated my life insurance and put it all into Bitcoin, which was back then like I don't know twenty thousand euro, and I thought like, dude, man, you're you're fucking insane. That's that's like crazy. And this guy like this guy never bought a, like bought a stock. He did he didn't know what an ETF was. He had no clue about financial stuff. He was just like thinking outside the box and hanging out with a lot of people who who were like him. And and for him this like um, this gamble like completely worked out, and and I was like kind of it, it was inspiring and it, it was not like him it was not that like I put all my savings into Bitcoin but for me it was like you know, to know someone that early with uh, so much commitment that like was kind of inspiring so I thought like well, there are some people who really think uh, I I didn't fully understand it back then and uh, well it was interesting then somehow the the capped uh, supply thing with the 21 million that that clicked as well as me i thought like okay if there's a capped like, supply uh, with a basically unlimited demand then you do the math the price has, has to go up right so and then uh when it comes to skin in the game i mean i uh, I, I invested a little bit and um that worked out for from for me very well and 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 i think uh but, but the point is more like to have skin in the game. I think once you invest something and then you're really emotionally involved with an asset, then you you suddenly shift your attention and your energy more towards it. And then, and then actually it's interesting for me, like then, then 2017, uh, 18 hype happened where Bitcoin like touched uh, across 10,000 and 18,000. And I, I sold, unfortunately, like m- many people did the same mistake. I sold most of it, you know. It was a nice profit, but like, it was not that, like I'm a millionaire or something. And of course, I was—I'm um, biting my ass now that I that I didn't uh, hold it longer. But but then it crashed again in in 2018, and that actually was the point for me when when I was like, "What, what the fuck is this? Like, what, what what's going on?" And you know, and it was and it was also this time where where all the where the Bitcoin scene, the Bitcoin media started to reflourish. I think the What Bitcoin Did podcast started back then, and I was listening. To this from the very first episodes and i thought okay there's there are more people who like actually lost a shitload of money i remember like peter mccormick's tweet like he was long time it was pinned to his twitter where he told the story how he lost three thousand three hundred thousand bucks just because he, he didn't sell it early enough uh and, and was gambling in coins and so but anyway like i i i that was actually, I think, late 2017, early 2018 was for me where, where it really clicked. With thought, this is actually amazing. It has the potential to really change something in the financial system. So long answer to your short question, but yeah, that's the, that was my way to the rabbit hole.
0: It's um, interesting hearing these stories over and over um, from different people because it's a similar journey that, that forms uh, with people. It's, there's usually like a first touch point where it's sort of like, um, sort of is initially sort of um, signaled to you in some way from somebody. Um, and and then you're left with this curiosity, really. And it seems like as that curiosity stays with you, you just keep on stumbling on other facts or other interesting things that Bitcoin um, can bring in um, and, and problems it might uh, potentially solve. And uh, once you start getting that Um, signal it becomes infectious in a way to the point where you fully understand the impact that it could have on society is that a similar kind of thing for you from listening to you it seems like you you sort of had the staged approach into understanding the value of bitcoin
2: yeah i mean to be honest like i i actually I, i i came from a pure i think my first interest was pure of investment was speculation reasons you know i thought like oh, okay something with a with a cap supply must go up in price and i, I like money I, I like i i also like to have fiat money sorry that's, that's fine for me um but um but like this this like finally like triggered my interest and then later on early from, from 2018 only, I started to realize, okay, this actually has a potential to really, really throw things over, you know? And I still believe it. I, I think we're still early. Like, um, I'm, I'm not a, I wouldn't call myself a maximalist because, like, I, there are just too many other things in the financial realm that that's, that I'm interested in. But I think also it's a very special moment in in financial history to... To witness the birth of a new asset, which has a potential to really overthrow everything, I think this, this is amazing. So, like the longer I follow Bitcoin, I think the more it, it actually it, uh, it unfolds, and I see more and more um, things that possibly can, can change.
1: Definitely, um, and you know, well, I think I'm a lot of like the Bitcoin Maxi Smith and you know, as someone who's working for a Bitcoin-only company and things. People's first touch point is mostly the number go up thing. Uh, oh, like you said, I can make money. Then it moves into something very interesting where maybe you have a lot of wealth and you go like, mm, I can just throw a couple percentages in there. Um, we're seeing this at the company now where, you know, people have very mature assets, very traditional assets. I'm not going to name them because I need to wait until the press release is out. So otherwise I get I get kicked in the ass tomorrow on Slack. But um, you see these different phases where people go speculative. I'll put something aside. Um, maybe I'll put more aside than what other people would do. But I think it has to be a balance for it to be a viable option, right? Um, and as you said, in Asia, it really was a flight to safety for people. Um, And to kind of bridge that gap, because most of your time or your work is focused on Asia and specifically how these different economical principles and like how society is shaped around there. And I was always curious if we have someone on who has a lot of knowledge in this, how bad is the social credit system in China really? Because you often read these horror stories and I go, I can see it in a city, but you know, people on the farming side of like the more farm life outside of these cities surely there must be some diversion between these things
2: um first it's, it's it's not as easy to answer this question as you might think because I mean China is a very centralized system that's true but then again you have many different developments going on in the provinces and sometimes it's really hard to to see one direction sometimes you have developments that really contradict uh, contradict each other and Different provinces, um, but I try to answer it as, as easy as possible. I, I think it's not as bad as some people paint it, but uh, it's bad. <laughs> so I it, it, it's not something that was like okay, I, I don't care about it. It's it's, it's all, all, all wrong. But but what is wrong? I mean, some experts are saying actually that um, this social credit system. Will never work um, as it was planned. It was planned like a real connection between, like your behavior, um, with with like other other data and your your payment system and stuff like that. This is probably not, not never going to happen because there's not really an interest in it from. Um, from the government, but you have like you have certain aspects in Chinese society where it works very well. And and, and if I if I, what I'm gonna tell you now, you you think like you probably would say like, okay, but it makes sense, why not, right? So for example, where, where they're really gonna start it or where actually it has started is in the traffic system. So you have, you know, you have a lot of EV um, electric vehicles on Chinese street. Um, these 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 vehicles all connected with the WeChat Thing and with your identity and with your number plate and everything. So and if you uh, if you um, what do you call it in English when you when you drive too fast and you, you, you get a, you get a ticket, I mean, this just happens automatically right? I mean, we have these tendencies already also uh, in the West already you have the, the blitzer. And you, you get the, pick, the ticket sent home immediately. So just think of this as an automated system, right? Like someone is like, it's just not only your number plate, but he knows it. Okay, this was this was Philip Maties, and he uh, broke the speed limit by ten uh, or fifteen k. Um, so he gets a fine and gets immediately subtracted from his WeChat WeChat Pay account, something like that, right? So it, it, when you hear the story like this, it doesn't sound so scary. It doesn't sound so dark. It just makes sense in a way that these things happen. And, um, and then another thing that, that also is, is like understandable, like, uh, you know, in, in Germany, we have the Schufa system where you get like, uh, when you haven't paid your fines for a, for a while or you haven't paid your, your your loan rates back, then you get a negative interest. Um entry in, in, the, in that system and that makes it much harder to get another credit right and, and uh, they actually want to do this for for companies so if a company has a very bad uh, track record of paying their debts then it gets like basically blacklisted and it gets much harder for them to get a credit so you have you have like you have like different areas where there's a lot of optimization coming there's a lot of digitalization coming what is most likely, and if I say this, I mean like ninety-eight percent probability. What is not going to happen is a combination of all these different areas into one system. I mean, this is, and this is, I think, is a real like a a dark, uh, a, a more like a dark fantasy uh, people have in the West. I think it's, I think it's not bad to, you know, to to sometimes paint this black mirror version of it in order to warn people and make them a little bit more sensitive. But you also have to keep in mind this is this is not really what's happening in China. I mean, there are a lot of bad things happening. And also, if you, if you take a look at Xinjiang, where they um, where they have these facial recognition cameras uh, for the Uyghurs and all this stuff. So there are a lot of bad things happen, but probably it will never be integrated into one system. And that's the, the black mirror fantasy people have is is most likely um exaggerated
0: it's um valuable and um thank you for your insights and perspectives because you know you, you you were out there and you you've seen it firsthand but you often do get sort of like this demonized view of the east and um some of that might be um gilded by the propaganda of the west and the way that we view uh economic systems globally and you know yeah you do hear the sort of comparisons um being drawn or people using the narratives of social credit scores and how that ties into cbdc's um but you you make a good point in the in the regard of well we are under surveillance in the west right we don't really sort of acknowledge that and we, we, we could sort of easily say the same for for us over here. Like, for instance, in London, um, I think London is the, the CCTV capital of Europe or something. You can't even sort of pick your nose or, uh, without a camera capturing you somewhere. There's something in the region of like 10 million um, surveilled cameras um any one go in in London so you know it's easy to sort of like go over there's the problem and this is where it's going to originate but um how how do you see sort of um cbc cbdc's and social credit scores um do you think they're sort of intertwined somehow or do you think that's like a false um segue into how we're going to move into economics within the future
2: it's a good question and i I would answer in a similar way i think it's it's very good to be aware of the danger and to warn people and to explain what could happen with that invention but at the same time i think you have to be a little bit realistic as well i mean at the moment neither in the ECB nor in China nor anywhere else is like 100% CBDC system planned. I mean, you know, the, the EC plan, ECB is planning with 3,000 euro and they explicitly say there's going to be a parallel system to cash and two other forms. And the and same, same in China. Like at the moment, no one is really planning 100% CBDC system. Now, of course, you could argue, well, okay, that's how they start and then they want to move to that. Yes, there is a danger, and I think people should aware, be aware of it. And I think also it's a, it's a good thing to have a, a stronger public debate about it. What could happen? I think that's that's really um, that's something we you always could appreciate. But on the other hand, there there are no like clear signs that there is a CBDC, a full CBDC system coming, which also is connected to a social credit system. This is this is just not on the table in any country at the moment. Right?
0: How do you see um, WeChat being sort of um, factored into this discussion? Because I know WeChat is like a, a platform where people can sort of make payments to each other, right? Um, is it necessary to even have a CBDC when people are already on this platform?
2: I think that's that's the best question, yeah. This is... That's the main point, I think, of the whole CBDC discussion. Why do people need it? Um, there are, I think, in a in a uh, in a broader geopolitical sense, there are use cases for it. Where, where I see use cases, but I don't see them really in private cases. And it's good that you that you mentioned WeChat because it's a, really like an omnipresent uh, app in, in China. It, it's not the only form, um, the only way to you you have, you have to you. Can conduct your payments. You also can like Alipay or others. And nowadays, a couple of weeks ago, they even like made it possible again, like to pay more with like Western credit cards. Um, and and you still can pay with, with cash. like it's say it there's also no, um, uh, there's nothing planned to abolish cash completely. I mean, people look at you a little bit strange now when you pay with cash, but this can happen to you in the West as well, right? Um, but I think I think the the whole CBDC discussion becomes like sometimes a little bit clearer when you think of um, um, of of the reserve currency of the dollar and international payments and stuff like that. So if you have, for example, an, an euro CBDC and an UN CBDC, like a direct trade between uh, China and Europe can be like facilitated, and that's. As I understand, that it, is also the main um, the main reason why von der Line and the ECB is so keen on developing this thing. Because if you if you just look at the, the this year the global payments, I mean, a lot of people talk about the death of the dollar, which maybe is coming. You know, I, I think uh, there's a debasement going on for sure, um, but the currency which has the biggest problems at the moment, like is actually the euro because like international payments in the euro, like went like, went like downhill in the last two years. Right. And there's one reason why the ECB says like, okay, we, we, we don't want to get like completely neglected. We need our, like, just like, to build up our systems to make our, to, to facilitate for our companies to make international payments. And, I think I think that's like the. the and I think this also explains why actually the the US is not developing a CBDC because they have they have no use case in, in international payments neither, right? But the Chinese like all the smaller countries they they have it. So I like um, I think to sum it up, I would maybe focus a little bit more on tendencies or people who want to abolish cash or want to ban Bitcoin. I think this is. This is there's a bigger danger in this area than the development of CBDCs. And the CBDCs they're coming, but like no one, no one is really like want to do it hundred percent, and they maybe have some use cases. And, but I think a lot of the fears are a little bit overplayed at the moment.
1: Most definitely, and you know, as um, someone who has lived a long time in Switzerland as well, like they recently started the. Um, It is the Helvetica and the, I can't remember other name project, Uh, both CBTC project very much with retail banks. They approached 34 banks. Two of them said, yeah, we're in it. And the remaining 32 was basically like, fuck off. Um, (laughs) We're not going to waste time with this Uh, because I think what most central banks don't realize is how actually outdated also banks are in itself. And how hard it is for them to even now accept modern payments, like, you know, we have Apple Google Pay over here, you mentioned WeChat, um, I mean, PayPal, all of these things, right? These have sort of been breakthrough technologies at one point that these days it's sort of like normal and banks still haven't caught up to this. So I think there's definitely definitely overhype, especially by the Bitcoin community, because we see doom and gloom in everything but most definitely it's an easier point i think to sell to like friends and family you know to then explain like my why maybe we don't need as much influence with the ecb um why cash will never die and when you said before philip um you know in europe especially we also need cash in these things i'm like yeah how else would european um committee people uh have 600k at home or, you know, sort of find ways to, to bend the rules a bit. Um, so I think that there's a, there's a mix of fear and overlays there, but someone who has traveled a lot through Asia, what are sort of the different um, perceptions with money in general? Cause you spend a lot of time in, in China and um, reading your book. You also actually went to most of the countries or you had contact with most of the people near the Silk Road. Um, how do you see differences there between these countries as well? Um
2: it's hard to really summarize it because I, I would say like more that each of the country has has like have has their own problems I mean in China I would say in general people are looking for investment opportunities and they don't have them I mean one reason of the housing crisis you see at the moment is because like for for decades it was like, Housing was the real estate was the only option for Chinese people to put to put their safe money in. Right, it was very hard to invest in, in anything else. It's, it's, it, now it's a little bit easier. I mean, some people are like, you can put some money into stocks, but the stock market in China doesn't have a good reputation. Um, the regulations are not really good, so there's a lot of scams going on. Um, you can buy gold now, but I think also in a collective memory, this is. This is not a, not so safe because gold was confiscated a long time. And now you have a Bitcoin ban, you know, you know that as well. So it's already, they still have Bitcoin, but it's much, much harder to get it. So I would say like for, for in China, it's the big question is what can I do with my savings? Uh, Where can I put them? There's no inflation problem at the moment. There's actually deflation, right? So it's, that's also a bit different. Um, but then when you move to other countries, one country, I, I lived a long time, lived uh, four years in Istanbul, in Turkey, so know the economy, economy there quite well, and, and, and Turkey is just inflation and incredible debasement of the currency, so people just like really desperately look for something to preserve the value, and I was just there recently, a couple of weeks ago, and... Turkey is now an interesting state of the economy because, like, they're actually doing now the right thing, right? They have like uh, they, they used to have eighty percent inflation, and now they really like um, pushed up the interest rates to like forty percent to fight inflation, and, and it, it's it's working. It's the old recipe, like just put up the interest rates, so um, to get inflation back under control. But now you have a you have an economy crisis. And so it's really hitting the country really really hard and bad. And, um, well, and then there are other things where, of course, like when you travel a lot, you, it, it becomes like, very obvious to you how important it is to, to transfer money to other countries, right? And, uh, um, this may disappoint some of you listeners, but, um, but I see it as a good sign, because I'm always like, surprised of how few people know Bitcoin. So, for example, I was just in Indonesia, and it was, I was—I had to transfer a couple of hundred euros to, to a translator and a driver, and, and they didn't have PayPal, and um, and I asked them, I asked him like three or four times, like they, they, you know, they, they asked me to do it via uh, the app Wise, you know, W I S E, and and I said I didn't have Wise. I had it on my phone, but I like, was connected to an old phone number, so I could not use it. And I said, like, hey, do you have any other options? And, and if you if, I always do that like whenever I have to I'm in this situation I was like do you have Bitcoin so, like, because I can send you Bitcoin and they didn't have it they said like no no way I said, do you want to try it no thanks <laughs> and um, and this happened to this happened to me many many third world countries so usually you know when I when I do research I, of course I need a, be a translator or sometimes we need a driver and so I have to, I have to like pay them somehow and so I always offer them. I always ask them, "Can I pay you Bitcoin?" And most of the time, the, the, the answer is no. And sometimes they're interested. And when they're interested, and I tell them about it, and then it, it clicks. I think it clicks much faster with these with people in these countries than uh, in the West because they they understand the use cases much much better, much quicker. Um, but on the other hand, you have to say like like. No, it's it's not it's not that like everybody in the in emerging economies is using Bitcoin because um, they're they f- they're fed up with the fiat system. It's it's not like this. Like most people, just like never really like in the West, they don't they don't think so much about
1: the money system. And I think it's it it kind of leads into the next topics very nicely. So it's a good um, it's a good transition there. Um, we see this in the Bitcoin centric media a lot, you know. Um, Just clickbaity stuff, like, I don't know. A crypto wallet. Oh, a bank now accepts crypto custody solutions. So it becomes bank now accepts Bitcoin custody solutions. Like yeah, Bitcoin may be like the biggest driver of them all because like the most established uh, for banks, especially important, biggest market cap and all these things. But you know they still want to get Ethereum and all of these other coins in because that's how banks make money, right, by charging a lot of fees. Um, and you kind of get this weird narrative media scape in in our uh, little bubble where you sometimes think like uh, it just doesn't add to the fact that we want to help people i think your example is one many people have had cards not working cash is not working you don't have to write things you ask if bitcoin is an option but they don't want to go there um But if they then, I just imagine if they look at us and they go like, well, these guys claim, for example, that Bloomberg said Bitcoin's going to 500k. If you actually read the article, it's just quoted some of the crazy guys on Twitter. So like, you know, okay, good job, everyone, um, of actually reporting on the truth, like reporting what's going on. Um, But for you as someone who's also working in the media industry, uh, and as I would say as a Bitcoiner, how has that life been like? Because for a lot of us, it's frustrating. You see these articles. Um, you want to help out, you can't. Um, are you sort of, if you meet fellow journalists, the Bitcoin guy? Or, or how, is, how is your life there um, compared to, you know, if you probably go into a Bitcoin It's it's, it's
2: frustrating for me as well. Because like, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm for some, I maybe the Bitcoin guy. There, I mean, I'm the only one, but like there are very few, I would say, dedicated Bitcoiners in the traditional media. I mean, you, you probably all know uh, Ijoma Mangold, like, he, I think, did a, did a big uh, service to the Bitcoin community by, like, bringing the topic into the, the Feuilleton and, the, and like, the, the high culture scene. Um, um, and th- then there may be, I think you, I think it's maybe not more than 10 in whole Germany where I think, like, where I read articles where I think, like, okay, this guy this guy uh, got it, like, he understands it. And then, of course, it goes... Don't have to forget, like, if you, for example, write for the Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is the readership is 50 plus and uh, mostly, I don't know, left green voters and, um, I mean, it's getting better but no one no one wants an article that said like hey uh, Bitcoin is super interesting next year because it might go go up to 500k you know you you don't want this in, in, in your newspaper for, for good reasons right because you don't want to you don't want to push any assets and you don't want to have like crazy things there so even if you have journalists who who understand it very well and I think it's getting more. Like slowly, I read, the articles are real thing are getting a little bit better, but then you will have editors who like they're like, okay, let's let's not go crazy here, right? So it's still uh, it's still a niche thing. Um, I was I was more frustrated like in the last cycle 2019, 20. Now I see it more in a positive way. I think, hey, there's just so much room still to go. I mean, if they if they still write so much bullshit about Bitcoin. Um, then there's still so many people who don't have it who don't own one and they are potential buyers and and this, and this may like contradict some of the maximalist narratives but I at the moment I see um, a much bigger chance that like uh, Bitcoin gets fully adopted by Wall Street and from Wall Street it gets um, uh, how do you call it from, from there it like Gets the rest of the world, right? I mean, we, you can you can debate whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, there comes a lot of like bad things with it as well. But at the moment, I would say like this is the way uh, Bitcoin is spreading at the moment. It's not going from a grassroots level. I mean, this happens as well, and I think this is very, very important and valuable that um, Bitcoin is spread on the grassroots level. But my impression is like the big adoption is now coming from from the big money guys.
0: Do you think that's gonna? Um, do you think the Bitcoin ETF with the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard are going to be like the trigger for that type of adoption, or or do you think it's going to be, or do you think it's going to play out in some other way um, with that theory?
2: I think it will be a huge trigger because like just um, because the regulation will that make easier or or possible for big investment funds to invest in Bitcoin, right? Um, I think a lot of people in like the high finance have. They they know very well what's wrong in the money system, right? But like they just want to play it as as good as as good as they can and as long as they can. But they know what's, what's wrong with it, and they know that like scarce assets gonna go up in value in the long long term. So I think this will be a catalyst for Bitcoin price. Or you know, at the moment, you can argue it's maybe front run already. Then it could be like a buy the rumors, sell the news. to when, but let's see. But I think the long term is I think more money will. Come into Bitcoin with this ETF, and, but on the other hand, I mean, you see it in like in like uh, beer um, uh, beer markets. I think the it's it's the small hodlers who who keep the price somehow stable, who create a floor with their with their DCA uh, basically to to let it not go to zero. I mean, it's, if you if someone says like Bitcoin going to zero, then you, like, not in the next couple of years, because you have more and more hodlers who, who have their DCAs running and they're buying, they're buying all the time. I think, I think this is also very important for Bitcoin. And, and yeah, and then I think it's also, also this, this, I mean, Bitcoin for me was also like a media revolution. There's so many podcasts and, and, and publications sprung up. And I mean, they like, Sometimes they're a little, a little bit too extreme, or sometimes they're a bit crazy, but like, but <laughs> fine. I mean, like they they're really spreading the message what you can do with Bitcoin. I think it's in, in the, in altogether it's a very positive development.
1: I think if you um if you get the inside of the industry, I personally don't know an industry where let's call it creators, whether that's being a podcast a one-man news show or even something like Bitcoin Magazine has such a big influence on the whole ecosystem because basically people just meet on Bitcoin Twitter or, or Nostra or wherever they meet online and these creators can really capture an audience. I think also for the negative, I think this is something we'll see more and more in the future when you know you have the likes of Fidelity, a BlackRock uh, having their influence and then you sort of have the creators from the other end coming in and some things will not align, right? So there will be some discussion some fighting going on it will be fun um, but it's definitely quite impactful how how bigger of the uh, portion of the market it now is compared to i don't know maybe six seven years ago because you didn't even have proper books back then you know you just had a few and now it seems like everyone has written a book um <laughs> and sort of sort of uh, goes into this one um but speaking of uh, writing a book philip um and i will then hand over to ian with the question um or the follow-up question. You've also written a book. You've focused essentially on the, the Silk Road, not the webshop people, like the proper Silk Road. Um, and you call it the Dirty Silk Road. What was the name behind, or uh, to English translated, I think it's the, the Dirty Silk Road essentially, because um, it's in German. What was the reasoning behind the title and what got you interested in, in actually taking a, a deep dive down that particular rabbit hole? Um, like I said, like I used to live in China
2: a long time and then, Late 2020, and um, and then for me it was kind of logical to re-shift my focus a little bit more on what's China doing abroad. and I got really inter- interested into that, and uh, the Silk Road or the Belt and Road Initiative, as it's also called, like it's it's the it's the largest or first mm-hmm. and and largest like geopolitical um, initiative by China. Right. So basically China is like investing altogether 1.3 trillion uh, um, US dollars abroad in infrastructure projects. And, and with these projects, there are not only good things coming with it, but sort of like political influence, a lot of corruption, uh, a lot of environmental damage. Um, so what I did in this book, like I, I I tried to visit as many as, as many of these projects as possible um, on the ground and, and uh, talk to people who are directly affected and also try to get a macro, uh, better macroeconomic understanding of the country and why it, why it has accepted these Chinese loans and what the money did with it. And, and I would have to say like, it's not all black or white. There's, there's, a, there's also like a like few good examples, but I think in general, what you can say is that it was mostly very badly planned. And for the people directly affected uh, by the project, it was most of the time, it was not a good thing. So it was a lot of like, like I said, like, environmental damage. Um, sometimes, you know, usually it's about like big uh, railroads, railroad stations, pipelines, ports, uh, streets and all stuff like that. Most of the time, they are like really not catered to the needs of the local population, um, but maybe have some some macroeconomic advantage for the country, which then again is only like like only the elite profits by it. So that's why it's called basically it's a it's a dirty silk road. And on top of that, I mean. Along a lot of political influence, China is using these projects to expand its political ideology and uh, power along this this silk road.
0: This is how. Uh, well, I'm fascinated um, by how economics has an impact on on us, the people, if you like. And in in such a system as or the systems in which we we live globally, um, there's always people that suffering more than others in that system there needs to be those that are benefiting on the back of other people and um you know my mind's going towards Alex Alex Gladstein's work about the IMF and how essentially they they operate with these dirty loans and how how the, the function um is dependent on the oppression of other people. And I don't know if you've got any sort of opinions about that or insight or perspectives that you want to also sort of throw in to the mix here.
2: Yes and no. I, I read Gladstein's work and I would, not that I really would disagree with what he said, but I just like, I have a, like just a very different perspective on that. I mean, I, even like, not even, but like with my Fascination of Bitcoin. I still would call myself like a classical liberal uh, when it comes to economy. I I think I think free markets are good. At the end, I think they serve everyone, and I also believe in in capitalism, capitalism and the market economy. And I think like when an when an IMF loan comes, there are some a lot of strings attached to get an IMF loan. But like usually the strings that are attached. are things that I would like underwrite where I think this is good so usually if you if you need and if you get an IMF loan you need this country needs to um, um, I don't know sell uh, sell some some of the state-owned companies and stuff like that right to liberalize the economy um, cutting down uh, duties and, and customs Uh things like that, so, so, so it needs to liberalize the economy. and I think um, quite often in some countries this is done in the wrong way. It comes as a shock therapy and it's not really done with like um, people who have a good knowledge of the situation. don't know what's happening i i give you just like a stupid example i don't know if it's true but for example like in kenya a lot of people like uh, gave me this criticism as well they're like hey i'm coming and they actually destroyed our i'm making this up now so don't don't quote me on that but like they they forced us to sell our state-owned milk industry right so a lot of people lost their jobs and now the milk is coming from nestle and of course, this is—I would say—this is, is a is a bad example. It's it's not true like this, right? But it's, I would say this is an example of an of an of an wrong uh, of an of, of privatisation that did not go well, right? And I think this happened a lot with IMF loans, but still, I mean, on theory, on paper, I think this actually comes with an ideology which, like, I would say, is, is good. Like, please liberalise, um, liberalise. Um, Dysfunctional uh, state-owned companies. I think that's a good thing, and, and, and get rid of get rid of customs because it's also like usually not really beneficial uh, except to a certain elite within the country, right? Um, what China does, the Chinese loans come with like so-called no strings attached. They don't they don't uh, want the country to change anything. Mm-hmm. They just want to work with this elite, and they just want to get out what they want. So usually it's about like. Uh, Getting commodities and raw materials into China and selling Chinese products outside. They don't care about the political system, but they also don't care about human rights. They don't care about the mental damage. And
1: all this is, is
2: actually happening uh, like when you when you want to get a loan from the EU or or the World Bank or the IMF, you have to take care of these things, right? So I would say I, I, I completely understand and accept that many things went wrong with these imf loans but if you ask me what is better um get a loan from china or get it from the IMF? i still would say like the imf um and world banks loans are the, are the better option for many countries
0: it's, it's, it's great hearing um, these conflicting um perspectives and my my personal journey through the, the rabbit hole if you like and and what i find valuable in in doing this and speaking to people like yourself is because hearing other people's perspectives helps me navigate the reality of situations and and you know i've i've come into this as a complete novice and i'm i'm sort of curious about how things operate and i think sometimes as bitcoiners we we're, we're in danger of just echoing the 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 narrative without actually looking deeper um and Thinking about the complexities of how uh, it functions, and and I think Joelle, you l- alluded to it earlier about um, sound bites that are just retweeted about headlines, and when you actually read the article, it's saying something very different. So I think we can get better at sort of really understanding different perspectives, like the one you've just offered in relation to you know what Alex Gladstein has been presenting, because I think there is this temptation of just sort of like going with the hype sometimes and um i welcome the, those perspectives so thank you for that um but as we walk in um towards the end of the show uh, we usually end our show with the all roads lead back to bitcoin challenge and um we're, we're trying to sort of put a challenge at the end of each of our episodes and we're going to give you a word and somehow philip we you're going to have to try and relate that word back to bitcoin um, you can have some thinking time. It's not a problem. Um, and it could be as philosophical or factual as you like. And the word that we've decided, Philip, is silk. How does silk relate back to Bitcoin? Wow.
2: I can get very po- poetic. Like, I would say something like... Go for it. Among all the different forms of money, uh, Bitcoin is the silk of money because it's very soft and
1: transparent
2: and almost not like how do you say um you think it's not there but it's there jesus you you get you get like weird things out of me
0: may have you if you've watched any of our shows you realize the the weird things come from me mainly so (laughs) you're in good company
1: mostly mostly the philosophical rant. when i've done editing i go like oh, ian why did you do it again but um yeah that's part of the show um no that's interesting i was more going off silk for a long time used to something be um i wouldn't call it like the thing like maybe gold used to be but you know it was also sort of a medium of exchange in certain areas along the silk road and essentially it was part of why it was called the Silk Road. So that was sort of my thinking, but like, yeah, actually has a, actually has a nice point. Uh, thank you for that. And with that proving that there is actually a way that everything can still lead to uh, Bitcoin. Um, but I don't want to overstay and, uh, you know, uh, keep you on too long, uh, Philip. Before we leave, is there anything you want to keep with the or send out to the listeners? Uh, you know, where can people find you online? What's the best place? Uh, the stage is yours, essentially.
2: Um, yeah, as, as, as you mentioned, like most of my work is, uh, is in German. Um, but you can find me on Twitter uh, with my with my full name, um, link, and there I sometimes post them in English as well, but mostly it's German. I have my Substack, which is called uh, uh, blingbling.substack.com. Unfortunately, it's in German, but this is the place where I try to connect um, everything we were just talking about. So it's a lot about Bitcoin. It's also a lot about geopolitics, Asia, um, emerging economies uh, and their challenges. So that's the the best place where I connect all the dots. And sometimes I also like... uh, publish like parts of my research or parts of my uh book there
1: perfect we'll definitely link everything in the show notes below uh philip thank you from my end for talking to us it was fascinating diving in all of these different aspects it felt like we've really been all around the world starting in asia coming to europe and even mentioning a bit the american way um well you're a guest of the show now so you're welcome back anytime and um also a big thank to all the listeners as always guys stay curious
2: It was great talking to you guys. Thank you very much.